At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 33, The Soviet Empire, 1944 to 1953. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. In this episode, we're going to examine Stalin's empire from its victory over the Third Reich to Stalin's death. We will look at what made the Soviet Union different from other empires of the period, examining the core of the Soviet Empire, Russia, the Soviet republics, her Eastern European satellites, and her further imperial ambitions. As always, please forgive me for any mispronunciations. After the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945, the Soviet Union was the last European land empire stretching from the heart of Eastern and Central Europe to the grasslands of Central Asia and the vast wildernesses of Siberia to the Pacific Ocean. In contrast to other great empires during this period, such as the French or British, who had overseas empires, the Soviet Empire was also different in two other respects. For one, unlike the other great European empires, she was in the ascendancy. And second, her imperial ethos was far different. Most empires we have seen during this period struggled with the issue of nationalism and lacked the resources in retaining large overseas populations. The Soviet Union, in contrast, not only acknowledged but in many cases celebrated the different minorities and ethnic groups that lived within her vast boundaries. Moreover, she possessed the unifying principle or myth of Stalinism that in a theory, a theory that transcended the different nationalities of her subject peoples and united them all under, as Soviet citizens. The French and British, in contrast, struggled to find a unifying ethos for their different peoples. Many different communist parties around the world, though not part of the Soviet Union, owed Moscow a semi-spiritual homage as the leader of the international Marxist-Leninist movement. For those within the Soviet Empire or its vassal states of Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union possessed many soft power approaches such as propaganda, peer pressure, or rewards to buy loyalty. If these tactics didn't work, mass incarceration, murder, and T-34 tanks could be brought in to solve the problem. Moreover, unlike the French or British, who struggled to maintain their empires militarily and economically, the Soviet Union, even with the devastation of the Second World War, remained strong enough in the short term to maintain her, her hold over its different republics and vassal states in Eastern Europe. Many of these states and the Soviet republics had been devastated by the war and were not in a serious position to resist Soviet occupation. The Cold War for the Soviet Union, like the United States, was a new type of conflict that they hadn't fought before. In this new global conflict, the Soviet Union lacked a, a blue-water fleet, limit, which limited its influence to that of her borders. Nor did she have long-range bombers at the beginning of the conflict, which could reach Great Britain or America, making it hard for her to project power overseas, especially as the Soviet Union shared only a small remote border with the United States. The Soviet Union also lacked the wealth to globally compete against the United States in a protracted conflict. 
This wasn't a conflict with, like with Germany, where her vast armored columns and legions of Red Guards could defeat NATO forces on the battlefield. The introduction of nuclear weapons had negated the value of her conventional forces to deliver a knockout blow. This was a war for hearts and minds, first in Europe and later spreading to the rest of the world. Unlike Nazism, Western consumer capitalism was very enti- a very enticing system to many people in the world. Moreover, given the dynamic economy of the West, as the conflict went on, the Soviet Union struggled to keep up technologically. When the conflict began in the late 1940s, the United States and Soviet Union had a rough technological parity, but by the late 1980s, the West, and principally the United States, had far outpaced the Soviet Empire. The Soviets had hoped that America's economic wealth was transitory, destined to be wiped out in a crushing depression that capitalism was all too prone to. But by the late 1950s, it was clear that American economic dominance was pretty much established. In many ways, though, the Cold War was far more familiar to the Soviet Union than the United States. The Soviet system had been born in war and was shaped by the Russian Civil War. Its economic system was built on the premise of mass mobilization and individual sacrifice on a scale virtually unknown in the West. The Soviet Union had suffered horrendous losses from the war. 31,000 factories and industrial facilities were destroyed. Over 1,700 cities and towns were turned to rubble or burnt to the ground with their inhabitants dead or displaced. One U.S. security report estimated Soviet losses at 675 billion rubles, surpassing the entire national wealth of Great Britain. Later Soviet calculations estimated the damage at 2.6 trillion rubles, while suffering 26.6 million deaths, both civilian and military which was compounded by the estimated 30 million deaths from Stalin's purges and forced collectivization in the 1920s and 1930s. Millions of those who survived the war were forced into poverty as the state rationed food and requisitions people's wealth through taxes and semi-voluntary donations to buy war bonds to pay for the massive cost of the war. The Soviet Union also faced the renewed danger of famine in 1946 as a result of drought, but Stalin refused to accept relief from the United Nations, and Stalin also raised taxes on farmers to continue his policy of heavy industrialization. By 1950, taxes on farmers had jumped 150%. The state also refused to pay back its war bonds. In contrast, new reconstruction bonds were issued, which the peasants were forced to buy in what amounted to large-scale theft from the Soviet people. Despite all this, the Stalinist system survived through its ability to concentrate resources, maintain internal discipline, and act decisively under great pressure. Moreover, the victory in the Great Patriotic War had brought the Stalinist regime a legitimacy domestically and internationally it had never enjoyed before, and the influence of the communist parties grew around the world. Its two mortal enemies, Germany and Japan, lay prostrate. It militarily dominated the Eurasian landmass with no rivals. The Stalinist system after the war continued to favor heavy industrialization and slave labor. The system was designed to reduce consumer consumption and extract resources from the population and pump them into heavy industry and defense. By the end of World War II, the Soviet Union was spending 50% of its GDP on defense and heavy industry. As the regime assumed, nationalism could be used to compensate for the low standards of living because of low investment in consumer goods. The fourth five-year plan, 1946 to 1950, cut back a little on investment in defense and heavy industry and provided more for investments in consumer goods and farming. Despite the famine of 1946, gradually the Soviet economy recovered 
and by 1947, rationing could be ended. By 1950, the living standards started to recover and less coercion was necessary. Defense spending did spike again in 1950 with the outbreak of the Korean War, but it didn't seem to have a severe effect on the standard of living. Many in the leadership knew that the heavy investment in defense spending and the use of slave labor provided very little return on investment. Beria and Melenkov knew that incentivized labor was far more productive than forced labor. But Stalin saw the gulag system as an essential tool in modernizing Russia and could not be dissuaded from this view. Soviet politics broke down into two factions at this time. The politicals, who followed a hardcore acceptance of Stalinist ideology, and the technocrats, who argued for a pragmatic use of market forces and less investment into defense and heavy industry. The technocrats believed that experts could organize a planned economy to rationalize the economy using a mixture of discipline and incentive to organize labor more efficiently. Politicals felt that the technocrats were too bourgeois. In their view, all the party needed to do was revive the spirit of the masses in socialism via propaganda and harsh discipline, and they could achieve heroic feats of industrialization. Stalin's stance between these two groups changed over time and subject. In the late 1930s, he backed the politicals as much as as much of the nomenclatura and this intelligentsia were wiped out in purges. During the war, the technocrats, with their efficiency, pragmatism, and ability to get things done, recovered and gained much more influence with Stalin. After the war, though, he saw many of them as a threat to himself, and he had them eliminated in a new round of purges. In general, though, the power and status of managers, technicians, experts, and scientists grew in the post-war period. Stalin used purges and bullying to restore some of the powers he had lost during the war. Nonetheless, he knew he needed them to run the state and the economy, and in 1947, he granted the Council of Ministers complete control over the economy. He did, however, continue to control political power and foreign policy. Thus, the post-war period was different from the 1930s, when Stalin was deeply involved in economic matters. Moreover, culturally, the post-war period was much more open. During the war, American films and jazz were exported from the United States to the Soviet Union, and Soviet citizens were allowed to partake. After the war, these were once again outlawed. Nonetheless, Soviet radio stations continued to play jazz, renaming it, quote, light music. Soviet youth were especially drawn to American culture, and a subculture developed devoted to Western music, clothing, and dance. The authorities and older generation bemoaned it, but no serious attempts were made by the KGB or Soviet authorities to break it up and arrest its members. The war also had rekindled Russian nationalism, and after the war, the Russians formed the bulk of the party members and state bureaucrats. During the war, the Soviets had used Russian nationalism to rally the majority Russian population to support the regime in battling the Third Reich. Russian history and culture became the backbone of the regime. Films, novels, and history books all presented the Soviet Union as the successor of the Russian Empire. Other ethnic groups, especially Jews, given their foreign connections, were removed from office in favor of Russians. Stalin himself also embraced this new Russian identity, despite his Georgian roots. He believed that the Soviet Empire faced the same diplomatic challenges as the old Tsarist Empire, and he read a lot of Russian history. Stalin's interest in history tended to also focus around diplomatic and political histories. He was an advocate of real politique, or a system of politics or principles based on practical rather than moral or ideological considerations. 
This embrace of Russian czarist history and realpolitik, in combination with his beliefs in Marxist-Leninism, shaped Stalin's and, by extension, the Soviet Union's politics at the time. In many ways, his foreign policy was a combination of wide-ranging historical imperial Russian traditions and the insecurities of his Marxist mind reinforced by the countless wars that had spanned his life and shaped his worldview. Most of the Soviet elites and common citizens, though, were tired of war and were looking forward to the post-war peace. Living standards with the end of the war had fallen, like most places in Europe, making the pre-war living standards of the late 1930s seem like a utopia. As millions were demobilized, they returned to desolate, desolated fields where their villages were once stood or ruined landscapes that used to be their neighborhoods. Many were widowed. Uh, many were crippled or maimed. Millions of children were orphaned with no parents or homes at all. Many returning soldiers finding their lives in ruin and unable, unable to find work became thieves or drunkards. Other ambitious young men chased careers in the party or science, which promised the most opportunity. Despite the great pride the Soviet people felt in the victory over the Nazis, they above all wanted peace, stability, and wanted to avoid another war. Many Soviets also thought the purges and terror of the 1920s and the 1930s were behind them. They felt that they had proven their loyalty to the regime in the war and that they would be compelled to respect and listen to the, to the guidance of the new Soviet nomenclatura and as thousands had traveled to the West as well during the war. They saw the power of capitalism firsthand. They knew that socialism wasn't the greatest system and that materially their living standards were far behind those in the, in the West. The troops who had liberated Poland and Czechoslovakia found the material wealth of Eastern Europeans shocking. In the Soviet Union, for an ordinary farmer to own a cow and a few chickens was considered quite wealthy. They also saw thousands of bicycles, an unknown form of transportation in the Soviet Union. Berlin and Germany were awe-inspiring and confusing for the Soviets, as many couldn't understand if the Germans were so rich, why would they want to invade Russia, which was so poor? Many other Soviets had traveled to Britain and America and were astonished by the wealth and prosperity. In many ways, though, this complicated the Cold War, as many Soviet officials believed that the United States owed the Soviets for their sacrifices that they had made in the war. They didn't see Lend-Lease as a loan but as a debt or moral obligation the Americas, Americans owed the Soviet people. Moreover, from the new Russian nationalist perspective, Russia had saved Western civilization three times in its history at tremendous cost, once from the Mongols, once from Napoleon, and again from the Nazis. This naturally complicated relations with the Americans, who saw the Soviets as rude and un unappreciative. Nor did they buy into the Soviet argument that the Soviets had basically won the war on their own. Moreover, for many senior Soviet officials, the United States was a mystery with its democratic government. Many, however, including Stalin, thought they could work with Roosevelt and the Americans in the post-war period, despite their differences. They believed with the America, America the primary sea power and the Soviet Union the primary land power, there was very little chance that the two would fight each other in the future. However, with the death of FDR in April 1945, the Soviets lost their biggest advocate within the American government, and as the 1940s progressed, Fewer and fewer of their New Deal Democratic allies remained in positions of authority. Only Henry Wallace continued to be a vocal political ally, but his defeat in the 1948 presidential elections virtually ended his political career. The new president, Harry Truman, was an outspoken anti-communist and was far less trusting of Stalin and the Soviet Union. Late April 1945, the Americans cut Lend-Lease aid without warning 
in what the Soviets saw as a blatant American political pressure. The aid was quickly reestablished after the Soviets protested, and the Americans claimed that it was a technical oversight. Stalin therefore saw the United States as the Soviet Union's greatest foreign threat. The United States had been untouched by the war and had suffered far fewer casualties with a death toll of 293,000. Moreover, the United States possessed the largest economy in the world. In contrast, the entire Soviet economy only represented 15% of the American economy. More importantly, the Americans had the atomic bomb and a fleet of long-range bombers who could deliver these weapons deep inside the Soviet Union. Initially, though, Stalin believed that the next big war would be between Great Britain and America, as he believed Britain would fight America to retain her control of vital markets. Nevertheless, Stalin could see quickly that the U.S. and Britain were becoming stronger allies and that the next world war would be between the forces of capitalism and socialism. Stalin didn't want to risk war with the Allies in the near term, though, and he wanted to legitimize the new borders of the Soviet Union, and he needed time to consolidate his position in Eastern Europe. His forces were still battling insurgents in Latvia, Ukraine, and Poland. Moreover, with the Soviet Union's losses of life and physical destruction, he'd need time to rebuild the nation. Even when he attempted to intimidate the West during the Berlin blockade or later with Korea, he would always attempt to avoid an all-out war, which remained Soviet policy throughout the rest of the Cold War. However, with the advent of the atomic bomb, Stalin felt that the balance of power had shifted to the United States and that the U.S. would use their advantage to pressure the Soviet Union for diplomatic concessions. He felt the United States had already slighted him by not allowing the Soviets to participate in the occupation of Japan and were pressuring him about establishing democratic governments in Bulgaria and Romania. Instinctually, Stalin decided to play hardball since he believed that any show of weakness would invite pressure from the Allies, who he believed wanted to destroy the Soviet Union. Moreover, he believed that he had to push hard to extract the best possible peace deal from the Allies, which would last 10 to 20 years before the next great war. Stalin also responded by launching a crash program to build a Soviet atomic bomb to restore the balance, which we reviewed in episode 17. Moreover, he saw the need to rebuild the economy for the future struggle with the capitalist West. He restarted his heavy industrialization projects from the 1930s with an emphasis on military production, especially rocketry and air defense. Stalin also saw the need to tackle domestic enemies. From 1945 to 1946, there had been a decline in arrest from 26,600 to 8,000. But in 1949, these numbers jumped back up to 38,500. He also, had, he also launched a propaganda campaign against fawning of the West to destroy any respect for Western culture and ideas by appealing to Russian nationalism. Stalin also feared the creation of the new CIA in 1947 and the fact that they had hired many former Nazi intelligence officers. The Nazis during the war had convinced many Soviets to switch sides and fight for them, and he worried about these spymasters and propagandists now working for the Americans. Stalin was also determined to move against the Jews. He believed that they were too cosmopolitan with too many connections outside the Soviet Union. Stalin ordered an immediate purge and ordered that stories of Jewish heroism during the war and the news of the Holocaust be suppressed. Anti-Semitism was nothing new to Russia, as pogroms or violent riots sanctioned by the state against Jews dated back to Tsarist times in the 18th century. Stalin's embrace of anti-Semitism shocked many Jewish and non-Jewish Soviet officials, especially in the wake of the Holocaust, and it damaged their faith in the internationalism of communism. Many Soviet officials around Stalin that dated from the 1920s had Jewish wives, 
and Stalin saw this pattern as a conspiracy against him, so he had their wives arrested and their husbands removed from power, Molotov being a prime example. Surprisingly, though, Stalin, despite his growing anti-Semitism, did support the creation of Israel, even allowing arms to be sent through Czechoslovakia. It's not entirely clear why Stalin made this decision, but some say he supported Israel to weaken British influence in the region. The military also became a target of purges after the war. Stalin wanted to rid himself of any potential Bonapartists, and he wanted to take all the credit for winning the war. Moreover, he didn't want his earlier military blunders exposed. Even General Zhukov, who had won the Battle of Stalingrad and Kursk, and who had led the final Moscow Victory Parade, was semi-exiled as the military commander of the Odessa Military District. However, many ordinary Soviet citizens supported Stalin's decisions and rhetoric in the heightened tensions of the Cold War. Soviet propaganda helped to breed these bitter feelings, but Soviet citizens were legitimately worried about the string of bases with nuclear bombers that now encircled them, as well as the rhetoric from some American officials like General Patton or Curtis LeMay. This brought the regime and the Soviet people closer to each other, as the Soviet people saw the contest with the West as defensive in nature. Moreover, it allowed the state to mobilize the people for massive projects like the atomic bomb. The Soviet republics, especially the Baltic states, had been conquered before the Soviet Union's entry into the Second World War and were quasi-liberated by the Germans, depending on your historical perspective. Following their reoccupation, thousands of nationalists, bandits, and Nazi sympathizers in the Baltic and western Ukraine fled to the countryside and forest and continued to fight a brutal guerrilla war against the Soviet Union into the late 1950s with thousands of deaths and the misguided belief that eventually the Americans and British would come to their aid and declare war on the Soviet Union. The Soviet response was brutally efficient. The Soviets understood that the struggle couldn't be won by force of arms alone. Local militias were formed so that the conflict took on the aspects of a civil war as relatives and friends sided with different factions. Torture was also extensively used, especially beatings. In Latvia, 18% of all those arrested died in interrogations. Other methods, including public executions and the display of rebel bodies in town squares to intimidate the local population from supporting the rebel insurgency, also happened. The Soviets also targeted the relatives and friends of those who are part partisans as well. In fairness, though, the partisans themselves did use terror and indiscriminate violence as well against local civilians and the Soviets. The Soviets even destroyed entire villages and deported their residents to the gulags in Siberia as well as run false flag operations where Soviet troops pretended to be partisans to attack local civilians so that the civilians could turn against the insurgency. In Soviet republics as well, the growth of Russian nationalism could be felt. Russification campaigns took place in the Baltic and the Ukraine. Thousands of Russians moved into the areas of the Ukraine and the Baltic to replace the indigenous peoples of these regions who had been deported to Siberia. The Soviets also moved to displace the Catholic Church in the Ukraine with that of the Eastern Orthodox faith, which had been rehabilitated during the war. However, many in the republic supported Stalin and the Soviet Union. Ukraine received new lands from Hungary and Slovakia. Stalin also passed off stolen property from Germany and Eastern Europe to buy the support of local leaders and their followers. Georgian, Armenian, Azerbaijani leaders also lobbied Stalin to retake their ancestral homelands in Turkey and Iran. In Eastern Europe, the Soviets now ruled over an additional 80 million people, about half the size of the Soviet population. Like the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe had been shattered by the war. Towns and cities were turned to rubble, and millions of people had become homeless. 
Mass graves dotted the countryside in parks and empty fields. Forty percent of Hungary's infrastructure had been destroyed. Moreover, the Germans had stolen much of the country's rolling stock in the retreat. In Poland, half the bridges were destroyed, half the ports, and two-fifths of the railroad. In Warsaw, 90% of the buildings were destroyed. As we spoke about in post-war Western Europe, the morals of Eastern Europe had also broken down. Most people began to resort to thievery and banditry to survive. Moreover, during the war, it had become common to change one's name, use fake papers, and as the war ended, Poles and Czechs robbed abandoned German homes. Jewish burial grounds were dug up as people looked for buried treasure. In one incident, in 1946, a train crashed outside of Lodz, and the local peasants came out not to aid the survivors, but to rob them of any valuables they might have. Because of the chaos during and after the war, bribery and corruption also became endemic for decades to come in these societies. Gangs of former soldiers also roamed the countryside, robbing, killing, and raping. Violence became the norm as many people had fought in the war or suffered under Nazi occupation. Studies have shown once people are exposed to extreme violence on a regular basis, they are more willing to employ violence to settle even minor disputes. During two weeks of summer in a single Polish county in 1945, the police recorded 20 murders, 86 robberies, and 1,084 break-ins, 440 political crimes, 125 cases of resisting arrest, 92 cases of arson, 45 sex crimes, and 29 other crimes. Many Eastern Europeans became extremely cynical about society and the values and education they had received before the war. Many of them, such as the Poles, Hungarians, and Czechs, were first-generation nationalities, as the nations that they had been born into were given independence in 1918. They had watched their nations crumble in the onslaught of the German invasions, and they questioned the viability of their, interna- their nationalist projects. Millions were displaced throughout Europe as they left camps and factories, clogging roads and train stations, returning home or trying to find loved ones. Bobbed wire and burnt-out tanks and trucks littered the countryside. The air was filled with the stench of dead bodies. The damage to Eastern Europe had been extensive as many places were occupied two and three times as the lines shifted back and forth between the Germans and the Russians. As one example, the city of Lao was occupied twice by the Red Army and once by the Germans. After the war, it was renamed Lviv and was no longer in Poland, but now in western Ukraine. Its pre-war population of Poles and Jews had been deported and or killed and replaced by ethnic Ukrainians. To give what happened a human face, Tidus Kanowski, a Polish writer, was born in Vilnius in what was the eastern Poland. After the German invasion, he joined the Polish resistance, or Home Army. He first fought against the Nazis and later the Soviets. At some point, he turned to banditry and and was randomly robbing and killing people while living in the forest. Eventually, he decided to leave the forest and return to civilian life. But Vilnius was no longer a part of Poland, and at 19, he had nothing but the clothes on his back and some fake documents. He had no education, no skill, no family, and no friends. Unfortunately, his experience was quite common. Eastern Europe, the Baltic, and the Ukraine had seen some of the worst ethnic cleansing of the war. Neither Hitler nor Stalin respected the sovereignty of the peoples who lived there. They jointly strove to kill the elites of these societies. The Soviets saw Eastern Europe as a capitalist stronghold, and Hitler considered these people to be subhumans. Soviet commissars in the NKVD liquidated social democrats, businessmen, bankers, and merchants. The East was also where the Nazis most vigorously pursued the Holocaust, 
where many of the ghettos, concentration camps, and killing fields were located. Of the 6 million Jews killed in the Holocaust, the majority were from Eastern Europe, and those arrested in the rest of Europe were shipped there to be murdered. Overall, Poland suffered some 5.5 million deaths during the war, or about 20% of the population. Germany lost between 6 to 9 million people, depending on who you define as German. Czechoslovakia lost 327,000, Hungary roughly a million, Romania half a million. It would have been difficult to find a single family who had not been affected from the war. Many people were extremely happy, though, that they were alive in the aftermath of the war. Despite the cruelty of the Red Army, they did free the Jews from Auschwitz and liberate the camps in Eastern Europe and East Germany. Hundreds of thousands of Jews also came out of hiding and began to live somewhat normal lives again. The arrival of the Red Army also made it possible for Poles and Western Poland to speak Polish again, as it had been outlawed during the Nazi occupation. Others, such as Hungary, received universal suffrage for the first time in their histories, extending the vote to women, peasants, and the uneducated. Many of the nations of Eastern Europe, though, were hostile to Soviet rule. They remembered their bondage under Tsarist rule not that long ago, and many more remembered that Stalin and Hitler had been allies at the beginning of the war. World War II ended, Stalin's post-war objective was the establishment of friendly socialist and left-leaning states in Eastern Europe to protect the borders of the Soviet Union against any future attacks. In Stalin's lifetime, he had witnessed two German invasions of the country. As we spoke about earlier, Stalin believed another world war was only a matter of time. With a band of friendly states along its western border, the Soviet Union would have a greater ability to fend off foreign invasions. The Allies, on the other hand, wanted an Eastern Europe with, which was democratic and connected to the world economy. Stalin, in principle, didn't oppose this and allowed for a semblance of democracy in countries like Czechoslovakia and Hungary early in 1945 and 46. But for those closer to the Soviet border, like Romania and Poland, he was less open and more insistent on regimes loyal to the Kremlin. Unlike in the Soviet Union, where communism had been achieved through revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat, Socialism in Eastern Europe would be built off of the 1848 revolutions, bringing an end to the remnants of feudalism in the region. Free from the influence of landowning classes and the capitalist, the will of the people would be expressed through the ballot box. The rights of the workers and peasants would be guaranteed by constitutional law. Not all of Stalin's Eastern European allies were happy with this arrangement, though. Local communists were often just as eager, if not more so, to establish communist states in their homelands and resented Moscow's placating of the Allies. Stalin also sought a weakened and or friendly Germany in Central Europe. As the Cold War developed, he feared a rebuilt Germany in, in the Western camp, and he was even willing to have a neutral Germany. In many ways, he was right. A revived, booming capitalist Germany at the center of Europe drew a stark contrast to the poor socialist states of Eastern Europe by the 1960s. Like in France and Italy, where the Communist Party had played a prominent role in fighting against Nazi occupation, in Eastern Europe and in most of the Communist parties, minus Yugoslavia, had been wiped out in the interwar years. Many of the states in Eastern Europe had deep anti-Soviet stances. Poland had fought two wars with the Soviets, 1919-1921, and again in 1939. Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, and Bulgaria had all been Axis allies during World War II, sending their armies to fight in Russia. Therefore, much of the communist base of support for the new regime there would need to be built from scratch. However, this wasn't a totally new project for the Soviets. They had experience in conquering eastern Poland in 1939 and the Baltic in 1940. 
Moreover, the NKVD had been collecting lists of enemies in the Baltic, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe since the outbreak of the war. So they had a clear understanding of who needed to be arrested and liquidated. This list also included the families of the main targets, per Stalin's instructions. These arrests were all carried out not at the same time either. The list was a part of a long-term plan to pacify the area. As the Red Army advanced through Eastern Europe in 1945, they established their allies in key positions within these new governments. Many of the allies the Soviets had known for years. They were escapees who had lived in Moscow or had fought in the Spanish Civil War, and many had served in the Comintern. First, the Red Army set up military tribunals throughout Eastern Europe without lawyers or witnesses, which continued for many years after the war. These were separate from the Nuremberg trials or international law. These courts arrested and eliminated people the Soviets considered enemies under Article 58 of the Soviet Penal Code for political crimes. Many times, these arrests were arbitrary as men were arrested on the street and, sh and shipped to the Gulag without trial in many cases. Children also as young as 13 were arrested and shipped off to camps. Merchants, barbers, and bar owners were arrested, and others were arrested for owning too many books. Others were arrested for belonging to right-wing organizations or for having served previous governments. Between 140,000 and 200,000 Hungarians were arrested and deported to the Soviet Union after 1945, most of whom ended up working in the Gulag. Second, the NKVD, or KGB, helped to establish secret police services across Eastern Europe in league with their local Communist Party. This force was used to gather intelligence and eliminate their local opponents. The NKVD taught the local secret police surveillance methods, how to identify enemies, real or imagined. They taught them that everyone was political and being, quote, non-political was a smokescreen for being saboteurs and or spies. They were also taught to think long-term to identify future enemies of the party. Anyone who had foreign connections or wasn't a communist should be under observation. Secret police were also trained in the art of making friends, building networks, and cultivating informers. They were trained in the arts of persuasion, bribery, blackmail, and intimidation. They had to convince wives to spy on their husbands and children to inform on their parents. Third, the communists got themselves appointed to the most powerful positions in the various left-wing coalition governments, such as the Ministry of the Interior, which controlled the police and security forces, issued identity papers, including passports and visas, and granted licenses to newspapers. This office had the greatest control over people's day-to-day -day lives. Another important post was the Ministry of Justice, which controlled the hiring and firing of judges and was used to eliminate, quote, fascist enemies from power, basically all those who opposed the Communist Party. Fourth was the control of the radio stations. The radio could reach millions of people, especially the illiterate, and combined with control of the papers, the communists could control the national dialogue or what people generally knew and talked about. In most of Eastern Europe, opposition papers did continue to operate until 1947-48, but they had very little access to radio. Fifth was the control of civil society. The local Communist Party harassed, prosecuted, and eventually banned church groups, youth groups, and independent trade unions, which were all replaced with communist organizations or were outright dissolved, giving the communists control of civil society and the people's day-to-day -day lives. Sixth, the Soviets sought to gain influence over to, and to quietly undermine the authority of the church. Religious leaders were a source of alternative moral authority, and they had independent financial resources via the Vatican, thus a potential challenge to their authority. 
Many Polish priests were arrested and sent to the Gulag. However, as a rule, the Red Army did not sack, destroy, or shut down churches as the Bolsheviks had done in the 1920s during the Russian Revolution and Russian Civil War. Much of the time, the Red Army went out of their way to reopen churches and religious schools. They believed that by showing their tolerance of religion, it would help them gain popular support. Local communist officials would participate in church holidays. The idea was for the communists to attract the young people away from the church, and in time the church would cease to exist as its followers died out. Meanwhile, attacks on the church were carried out in stealth. Church land was confiscated in the guise of land redistribution. The secret police recruited greedy and disenfranchised priests and those who wanted to work with them because they thought it would improve the lives of their parishioners. They would use these priests to divide the church to weaken its authority. In Hungary, for example, in 1948, many priests began a, quote, peace campaign organized by the Communist Party. The movement sought to organize parades and rallies to collect money for peace. Also asked to sign positions in favor of the peace movement and the Communist Party. Many church officials could see through the communist trick, and they, wa- they refused to sign and were attacked in the papers and on the radio as warmongers. The Vatican eventually fought back by dismissing these peace priests. Stalin also sought to use nationalism to placate the population of Eastern Europe as he had in the Soviet Union. He tried to use the idea of pan-Slavic brotherhood as an appeal to unite the peoples of Eastern Europe with Russia. The Poles were suspicious of Stalin's pan-Slavism, but the Czechs, Slovaks, Bulgarians, and Yugoslavs, the idea was much more welcomed, and Soviet propaganda mixed themes of Slavic unity and anti-fascism. Moreover, they were persuaded to pursue their own national roads to socialism, although, as we will see, this was later dropped in favor of a strict obedience and and commonality with Moscow. This early nationalist and pan-Slavic approach did help the Soviets and their communist allies gain support in the early post-war period. This allowed the local communist parties to embrace national issues and compete against parties on the center-right and center-left for more conservative voters, And many of these communist parties uh, focused on the expelling of minorities, especially Germans, which was very popular on the right. Europe before the Second World War was a different place than it is today. The continent was very heterogeneous. Sizable populations of Germans lived outside of Germany's borders in places like Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and even the Ukraine, as did Hungarians, Czechs, Ukrainians, and Poles. Ethnic populations were spread out across Europe, irrespective of national boundaries and a patchwork of towns and villages. Two large populations, the Romani or Gypsies, and Jews didn't even have their own nations. Nevertheless, nationalism of the period thought that only one nation of people should live in a geographically defined land, which was in theory their ancestral land. Thus, it was permissible to deport peoples that were not nationals. And the Soviets and the local communist parties sparked, facilitated, encouraged, and legitimized one of the greatest ethnic cleansings in human history, forever shaping the populations of Eastern Europe to fit the political maps of the period. The communist party often went out of its way to claim credit for it, and since they controlled the police, they often confiscated much of the belongings of the people they evicted, using the spoils to buy more political capital with the peasants and workers as they handed them out the spoils. From the period of 1938 to 1948, the demographics of Eastern Europe changed dramatically. 
the Nazi empire had sought to colonize Eastern Europe with German settlements. Nevertheless, it should be stressed that many German populations lived outside of Germany's borders in Eastern Europe before the establishment of the Third Reich from as early as the Middle Ages. The Third Reich, nevertheless, deported thousands of Poles and Czechs from their homelands for German settlement. In Lutz, some 200,000 Poles were forced from their homes to become slaves of the Reich, while the Jewish population of the city was sent to the ghetto where most died. In all, between 1939 and 1943, some 30 million Europeans were dispersed, transplanted, or deported. After the war, 1945 to 1948, the Czechs and Poles would repay the favor as thousands of Germans were pushed out of Poland, Czechoslovakia, and what had been Eastern Germany. In all, between 1943 and 1948, a further 20 million people were displaced from their homes. The vast majority of these people arrived in their new homes or returned home with little or nothing. Even before the war ended, millions of Germans began to flee west to escape the Red Army. Some 70,000 Germans who had been living in Romania were deported to the Soviet Union. In Czechoslovakia, the Czech president Benz declared the Germans little better than animals and forcibly evicted some 2.5 million from their homes. Some 7.6 million Germans were expelled from Poland, although 400,000 died on the way home to Germany from hunger and disease. A further 200,000 were expelled from Hungary. German populations were also evicted from Ukraine, the Baltic, and Yugoslavia. In all, some 12 million would resettle in Germany from Eastern Europe. Once these Germans arrived in Germany, they were often treated poorly and, because, and became an underclass as they spoke either no German, different dialects of German, or with an accent. Many with few or no belongings wandered the countryside in search of food. Germans were also mistreated in Czechoslovakia. They had to wear armbands with the letter N and swastikas painted on their back. They were banned from sitting on park benches, walking on the pavement, eating movies, or eating at restaurants. Poles made the Germans do forced labor, sometimes in former Nazi prison camps. In some cases, former inmates now tortured their, their former guards. Germans were starved and beaten and had feces poured over their heads and their gold teeth removed by force or in some cases burned alive. It might be understandable that after the war that many people wanted revenge against the Germans. But it should be remembered that not all Germans were Nazis, nor were many of the German communities outside of Nazi Germany. Their only real crime was, being, was to belong to the same ethnic group. Many Volksdeutschen in Eastern Europe couldn't even speak German. They just had German-sounding last names. Shockingly, the Allies were aware that this would be happening to the Germans in Eastern Europe, but they signed off on the plan to deport the Germans although the Allies had stipulated that these transfers should be made humanely. The deportation of Hungarians, Poles, and Ukrainians, and others from their homes had not been on the agenda, but the Allies paid little attention to the ethnic cleansing that engulfed Eastern Europe after the war. It wasn't just Germans who were evicted from their homes. Ukrainians were evicted from Poland, and Poles were evicted from Ukraine. By October 1946, 812,000 Poles had left Ukraine for Poland, with an additional 1.5 million leaving the rest of the Soviet Union for Poland. Many of these towns and cities the Poles were forced out of had been Polish for centuries. Many of the Ukrainians in Poland did not want to move across the border to the Ukraine. They had known about the horrible famine of 1932-1933 and did not want to live under Stalin's rule and, thought, and fought throughout 1945-1946. to 1946. 
as Ukrainian insurgents to remain in Poland. The Polish army had to be brought in, and it, it was unable to defeat the insurgency. Subsequently, in a major joint operation between the Poles and the, the Soviets, they forcibly evicted the rest of the Ukrainians. Some 89,000 Hungarians were pers persuaded to leave Slovakia to replace the Germans who had fled the Sudetenland, and some 70,000 Slovaks took their, took their homes. 100,000 Hungarians were expelled from Romania, 50,000 Ukrainians were deported from Czechoslovakia for the Ukraine, and 42,000 Czechs returned from Ukraine after the war. The Jews, unfortunately, didn't have a homeland to return to, and despite the horror of the Holocaust, Europe was still extremely anti-Semitic. Most tried to immigrate to America, Western Europe, and Palestine. With the creation of Israel in 1948, even more left, especially those who were anti-communist, and the governments of Eastern Europe facilitated their immigration to Israel. Those who stayed behind tended to be high-ranking members of the Communist Party. Many of the parties had long had Jewish members, but with their desire to bring more right-wing-leaning people into the party, they were only too happy to see the Jews depart. In the long run, like nationalism, anti-Semitism became another tool of the communists to gain popularity. The communists thought with this infrastructure in place, they would win the municipal elections in the aftermath of the war, which they argued was a result of capitalism and right-wing politics, but were shocked when they lost elections in Austria and Hungary in 1945 and in East Berlin in 1946. The Soviets might have been able to win these elections if it had not been for the Red Army's practice of pillaging and raping many of the inhabitants of Eastern Europe, which had turned many people against them. Second, Stalin also started to redraw the borders of Eastern Europe, taking land for the Soviet Union, which was bound to displease hundreds of thousands of people. Soviets also systematically plundered Eastern Europe under the guise of reparations payments. Even though nations like Poland and Czechoslovakia had been allies during the war, the plunder included everything from industrial equipment, artwork, historical documents, and household goods like clocks, shoes, and silverware, all shipped east in boxcars or stolen items in the pockets or bread bags of Soviet soldiers. Even whole factories were dismantled and shipped back to the Soviet Union. Hungary alone lost about 100 factories. Soviet soldiers especially loved to steal wristwatches and wore as many as they could find. The famous picture of Soviet troops raising the red banner over the Reichstag actually had to be retouched to remove all the watches the soldiers were wearing. All German and Austrian property had to be ceded to the Soviets, much of which had been taken illegally by the Germans in the first place, such as Jewish property. Hungary and Romania also had to pay huge reparations, and, uh, reparations payments as a result of the war, which pushed up inflations in, in both countries. Between 1945 and 1946, they represented about 17% of Hungary's GDP and a further 10% from 1946 to 1947. After that, they fell to about 7% until the, they ended in 1952. Hungarians also had to feed and house the local Soviet troops, which cost about 10% of the government's budget. They also had to house and pay for the Allied Control Council for the country, that lived in a lavish lifestyle, buying cars, tennis courts, villas, and even flowers for their Hungarian girlfriends, all of which the Hungarian government had to pay for. Poland specifically was a state Stalin demanded loyalty from. Having annexed half the country in 1939, he intended to reclaim those lands for the Soviet Union when the war ended. Despite his views on Poland, though, Stalin faced three main challenges in achieving this. 
For one, the Polish government in exile in London was recognized by the Allies, was anti-Soviet. Second, the Polish resistance movement, fighting against the Germans, known as the Home Army, was equally anti-Soviet. And finally, communism had been unpopular in Poland. The Home Army, however, represented the biggest challenge to this future subjugation of Poland with its 350,000 partisan army, many of whom's members were former Polish army officers and ex-soldiers. Stalin attempted to isolate and ignore the Polish exiled government and broke relations with them in 1943 after they discovered the discovery of the Katyn massacre where Stalin had liquidated 15,000 Polish officers in 1939. Stalin blamed the murders on the Germans, and when the London Poles asked for a Red Cross investigation, he broke up ties. It wouldn't be until 1990 that the Soviet Union acknowledged what happened. After cutting ties to the London Poles, the Soviets moved to create a new alternative communist exile Polish government composed of Polish communists loyal to Moscow. Second, the Soviets created a new rival Polish army. Things became even more complicated as the Polish ar ar home army began to fight both the Germans and the Soviets by the fall of 1943. With the German position collapsing, the Polish home army planned a mass uprising, focusing on Warsaw to establish a new Polish state before the Soviets arrived in Warsaw, thus ensuring the legitimacy of the exiled London government under, and undercutting the legitimacy of the Soviet-backed Polish government. In August 1944, the Poles rose up against their German occupiers. The fighting was bitter, especially in Warsaw, although other areas saw fighting as well. The Poles initially took about half of the city, but the Germans quickly counterattacked. Eventually, the Poles were beaten back by the Germans as they used dive bombers, tanks, and artillery to retake the city. The Soviets, who were only a relatively short distance from Warsaw, stopped their offensive. Moreover, when the Allies approached Stalin with a plan of dropping supplies to the Poles, Stalin refused. Stalin was content to sit back and let the Germans take care of the Polish Home Army for him. He knew the destruction of the Home Army would wipe away any real opposition to his plans on the ground. By October the 1st, over 80% of the city had been destroyed. 250,000 civilians had died, and 15,000 brave soldiers of the Home Army were dead. Politically, this was also a body blow to the Polish government in exile and the leadership of the Home Army. They now looked incompetent, and, their, and the communists used this defeat against them in their propaganda. This also led to a split in the leadership of the London Poles, as half now supported joining a coalition with the communists, whereas the other half refused. Meanwhile, back in Poland in the fall of 1944, the new communist authority declared the Home Army illegal and ordered its members to surrender, and the Home Army officially disbanded in January 1945. At the end of February 1945, the former leadership of the Home Army was invited to talks with the Red Army. There they were arrested and flown to Moscow, where most of them were killed at the Lubyanka for being fascist sympathizers. Many Poles gave up fighting Soviet occupation after this, whereas others decided to fight on. The Poles organized themselves into a new force, Freedom and Independence, or WIN, with a strength of about twenty to 30,000 men. With the help of the Soviets and NKVD, the Polish communists hunted down reaction the reactionaries or anyone deemed an immediate threat to the new government and had them arrested, liquidated, or deported. In all, between 1945 and 1949, some 30,000 Poles were executed, with another 45,000 arrested and charged with crimes against the state. Many smaller groups, though, continued to fight late into the 1950s. 
That July at Yalta, Stalin delivered a death blow to the Poles by getting the Allies to agree to his annexation of Poland's former eastern territories and for Britain and the United States to recognize the Moscow-backed Polish government as the legitimate government of Poland. Poles had a wide range of feelings for what happened, but for the majority, they wanted an end to the war and they wanted a return to normalcy. For, for that to happen, the, the economy would need to be rebuilt, schools reopened, health services revived, and civic institutions rebuilt. The new Communist Party helped to achieve all of this with popular land reform policies, which broke up large estates in redistribution of former German properties, which had been abandoned after the war. And by 1947, the Polish Communist Party had attracted some 500,000 members. Stalin also instructed the Polish communists to tolerate an opposition and to not alienate the Catholic Church. Elections in Poland were not held until 1947, but unlike some other places in Eastern Europe in 1945 or 1946, they were rigged in favor of the Communist Party. In the run-up to the election, non-communist opposition was arrested and physically harassed. The peasant party, the biggest opposition to the communist, had its offices forcefully closed. Its meetings were disturbed, radio access denied, as well as access to paper. In the end, the head of the peasant party had to be smuggled out of the country to West Germany. Ironically, the new leader of the Polish Communist Party, Wodzlej Gulmuka, was a ruthless communist who had studied in Moscow during the 1930s and was instrumental in crushing the peasant party, himself was arrested and removed from power by Stalin for opposing collectivization. Initially, from 1945 to 1947, communist policies in Hungary and Czechoslovakia were, were more liberal. Uh, functioning democracies emerged in both countries. However, as we saw in past episodes, by 1947 and the introduction of the Marshall Plan, Stalin's ideas about cooperation with the West and democracy had changed. Hungary's position in 1945 had been a rough one. It had allied with Hitler during the war and lost about a million people, or one-eighth of the population. Some 40% of its national wealth had been destroyed, and its capital had been mangled by the prolonged battle for the city in the winter of 44-45 between the Soviets and Germans. After the war, Hungary was occupied by thousands of Soviet soldiers. An Allied control councillor similar to that of Germany was established, which allowed the creation of a four-party coalition that ran the government with key ministries in the hands of the communists but which nevertheless allowed for a wide degree of political and religious freedom. Despite these relative freedoms, the Hungarian population resented the Soviets and, by association, the Hungarian Communist Party for the rape and pillage of the, of the Red Army and the heavy reparations Hungary was obliged to pay the Soviet Union after the war. Subsequently, in, October 19, in the October 1945 election, the combined Social Democrat and Communist ticket won 42.8% of the vote, and the smallholders' peasant party won 50%, an outright majority. Dismayed with the outcome of the election, the Soviets were determined to improve the position of the Communist Party in Hungary. Soviet authorities pr pressured opposition parties, especially the smallholders' party, through hostages and blackmail out of government. By 19, February 1947, the smallholders' political party leadership was arrested and accused of fomenting an anti-government conspiracy. The communists also quickly seized control of the Interior Ministry, Secret Police, and Army. In August 1947, new elections were held, with the leftist coalition led by the communists winning 60% of the vote. 
Communist Party officials held some uh, some third of seats in government, with their political allies holding the rest. In March 1948, the Social Democrats were forced to dissolve, and the subsequent May 1949 election, the Communists won 95% of the vote. Unlike Poland or Hungary, Czechoslovakia had been a democracy before the war. It had been a tolerant model of democracy between 1918 and its dismemberment in 1938. The Communist Party there before the war only attracted about 10% of the vote. Moreover, unlike Poland or Hungary, who had been enemies of the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia had been an ally of the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Therefore, during the war, the democratic Czech government in exile of Edvard Bernays uh, kept open ties to both the Soviet Union and the Western powers. Thus, unlike in communist Poland, the Czech Communist Party generally sought to gain power via democratic means. They remained respectful of the church, declared their support for democracy and a new constitution. They adopted national slogans and embraced racist positions against the Germans and the Hungarian minorities. However, as in other Eastern European countries, they were made to sure they controlled the interior ministry, inf- information, agriculture, and education. The prime minister, Zdenka Fergelanger, uh, was a fellow traveler who spent the war in Moscow as was, as was the head of the army. The communists also made sure to place their followers throughout the Czech bureaucracy. 140,000 communists were working in national committees, and a third of the generals were party members. By 1940, March 1946, the party had over a million members and, consi- and was, had considerable influence over the three million members of the trade union. As in Poland, the communists redistributed the land in hopes of gaining popularity with the peasants. In the 1946 election, they did, they did well by capturing 38% of the vote, while their biggest challenger, the National Socialists, a secular party not to be confused with the German Nazi party, won only 23% of the vote. The communists did well with their traditional base of support amongst the workers, but the land redistribution policy brought the support of the peasants as well. Would remain president, but Clement Gottwald would uh, become the new prime minister. At this point, our historical sources seem to tell us that the communists did not intend to take control by force, but to continue to work within the system, at least at this juncture. And when the Marshall Plan was announced, they, along with the rest of the Czech leadership, were interested in taking part. Czechoslovakia, like the rest of Europe after the war, had been badly damaged. Nevertheless, when uh, the Czech communist leadership flew to Moscow to confer with Stalin, he made it crystal clear to them that they were, not, were in no way to accept Marshall Plan funds from the Americans. The non-communists and the Czech government balked at the loss of Czech independence to Moscow. President Baines, the most powerful non-communist, was bedridden as a result of a stroke, and the Czech cabinet met and formally rejected the American offer. Now, as in Poland and Hungary, the communists attacked their political opponents with propaganda and radio broadcasts, accusing them of being tools of capitalist America. Three Democratic ministers received bombs in the mail. Fortunately, they were discovered before they exploded. Non-communist police officers were purged from their posts. In response, Democratic ministers resigned en masse. Communists fought back by organizing mass rallies throughout the country, and police and unions and the army declared that they would resort to violence unless the communists were given full control of the government. Benz, not wishing to, wishing to avoid a civil war, gave the communists what they wanted. 
Romania and Bulgaria were also nominal democracies as non-communist parties operated from 1945 to 1947. In 1944, the, the royal court and a number of generals staged a coup overthrowing Antoșescu, the Romanian dictator and ally to Hitler. Romania then tried to switch sides to the Allies. Nevertheless, the country was still occupied by the Red Army. The Soviets installed the communists at the head of a left-wing coalition known as the Democratic Front, or FND. The FND, despite their unpopularity, immediately pushed the king to give them control of the government. Meanwhile, in the Allied Council for Romania, they, the, the Russians uh, pressured the Allies to accept the FND as the legitimate democratic government of Romania. February 1945, the communists backed by Moscow staged a coup demanding they appoint the FND to lead the government. The king had no choice but to accept their demands and did. In Bucharest, fighting broke out between those who backed the backers of the FND protesters and the Romanian government forces. The Soviets quickly moved in to support their allies, deploying additional troops and two divisions of the NKVD, which established a communist state there. I want to take a quick break here and thank you for listening to the podcast and for sharing us with your friends and family. Me and my colleague David Forrest spend a great deal of time on this podcast. The average episode takes between 10 to 15 hours and costs 10 to 20 bucks, not including hosting fees and maintaining the website. Nevertheless, you guys represent the heart of this show. I'm a historian of the old school Leopold von Rankin method. My goal here, as challenging as it is, is to try to give you an understanding of what happened and how it happened to the best of my ability. Although I might from time to time give you different perspectives or play devil's advocate, I want you, the listeners, to make your own ethical and political conclusions about what happened. I do not and will not share my political, ideological, or religious beliefs with you on the show. As a school of history, we are a dying breed. Most historians these days come from different schools of thought that promote a certain set of ideological and political beliefs before they examine a subject. That's not to say that they are bad historians or their work is flawed. It's a comment on the, on the lack of historical perspective available today. If you enjoy this historical approach that I have taken in this show, please consider donating through our website, through Patreon, $5 a month, or whatever amount you feel is appropriate. Your donation will keep, help keep this genre of history alive. Thank you, and now let's get back to the show. Throughout Eastern Europe in 1947 and 1948, the left-wing coalitions of 1945 to 46 were merged into the Communist Party. Other parties were split to dilute their power, while those that survived were stage props for the ruling Communist authorities to give them a semblance of democracy. By 1949, all the nations of Eastern Europe had communist states. Soviet authorities were involved in all of these coups and political machinations. They approved and aided secret police actions, shaped electoral politics, and selected government ministers. Stalin personally approved political arrests, trials, unification campaigns amongst the different regional political parties, and made important government appointments in the individual states. Indeed, the Eastern European Communist parties were micromanaged from Moscow. They came to be instructed and learned to ask permission from Moscow in both domestic and foreign policy issues. Soviet advisors also permeated throughout the societies of Eastern Europe, ranging from guest professors in the University Philosophy Department to economists in the Interior Ministry, NKVD officers, and military advisors. 
Soviet advisors were involved in every major decision that took place from currency reform to the building of cultural institutions and art. In all the states of Eastern Europe, from the highly developed of East Germany and Czechoslovakia to the less developed of Albania, they imported Soviet advisors for a variety of purposes. Moscow often instructed them to transform certain parts of the government apparatus or society in general along Soviet lines. They closely monitored ideological development within the local Communist Party, local newspapers, the arts, education, etc., etc., and reported back to Moscow with ideological report cards. They constantly lobbied the local uh, nomenclatura and intelligentsia to adopt the complete Soviet cultural norms and political ideas. In the aftermath of the establishment of his vassal states in Eastern Europe, Stalin looked to purge these states of many of the original communist leaders he had helped to gain power. In Stalin's eyes, many of these men were too nationalistic and might end up going their own way like Tito. So he sought to purge anyone who questioned Moscow's policies or Marxist dogma. Stalin also didn't trust those who had fought in the internationalist brigades against Franco in the 1930s and the Spanish Civil War either. He felt they had too much exposure to British and French and worse, other corrupt ideas such as anarchism and or Trotskyism. As we mentioned earlier, Gumlika was one such victim. Another was Trecio Kustov, a devoutist Stalinist and founder of the Bulgarian Communist Party. When Bulgarian police attempted to arrest him in 1924, he actually leaped from a fourth-story building in an attempt to kill himself versus being captured. He broke both his legs and remained in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Gustav uh, had opposed selling the Soviets Bulgarian goods at below market value. Stalin had the NKVD, together with the local security forces, forge false charges against him and have him arrested and removed from the Bulgarian Politburo. Four months of torture, he confessed to trying to help Tito and the U.S. to reconquer the Balkans. Matthias Rakosi, a Hungarian communist who had fought in Spain, was arrested in May 1949 and was brutally tortured by Hungarian secret police. He was accused of being a French spy and a German collaborator and in working with Tito to make Hungary a capitalist country. In the end, everyone confessed. It was a matter of if but when. Torture, starvation, sleep deprivation, and mock executions all took their toll. By the time Rakowski, a once-proud, dedicated communist leader and a ruthless man who ensured communist rule in Hungary took the stand in his show trial in 1949, he admitted to everything and was subsequently hanged. When Stalin ran out of communists to execute, he had the remaining Social Democrats arrested and murdered. And when the head of the Hungarian secret police complained to Stalin about the executions, he too was arrested, tortured, and executed. A similar pattern developed in Czechoslovakia, where the Soviets purged the party of anyone they didn't trust or had Western ties, Spanish Civil War veterans, Trotskyites, and Jews. Anti-Semitism was especially strong in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, especially after relations with Israel soured. Stalin gave anti-Semitism priority. In all, some 15,000 Jews fled Czechoslovakia in 1949 for Israel out of the remaining population of 55,000 after the war. Those communists who survived the purges were even more loyal to Moscow and Stalin and more dependent on the Soviet Union. They obeyed any and all orders from the Kremlin without question. Again, the establishment of communist governments in Eastern Europe was a means to an end, not an end in itself. 
Stalin's goal was the formation of loyal buffer states along his border. He wouldn't tolerate obstinate de democratic regimes along his border, nor would he tolerate insubordinate Marxist regimes along his border. Stalin also consolidated and solidified his control of Eastern Europe by taking a number of actions, including the creation of the Common Forum in 1947. The Common Forum, composed of nine Eastern European states, was sort of like the Justice League of Communist States. The objective of the organization was to coordinate communist government activity, but in reality it hardened Moscow's control over Eastern Europe, ensuring ideological discipline and obedience to the Kremlin. In 1949, the Council of Mutual Economic Assistance was established to counter the Marshall Plan, further econ furthering economic ties between the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in an attempt to coordinate their different ec uh, economies and policies. Moscow also signed a series of defense and mutual assistance treaties in 1948 with Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary, and by 1951, Stalin was helping these nations, along with Poland, to rebuild their militaries into sizable forces, giving the Soviets further leverage against their NATO opponents. By 1951, despite their different languages and histories, the nations of Eastern Europe had become very similar in appearance. All were authoritarian, drab states with their own secret police and their own little Stalins, and all worshipped Stalin more or less as a god. With these societies in place, the communist parties also began to take over of their individual economies. They believed that to build a social society, the economy would be needed to be transformed. As we have seen, the first step was land reform. Large estates in the countryside were split up, which was fairly easy with the deaths and displacement of millions. But in 1945, this policy wasn't exactly communist. Many left-wing parties of the period favored land reform. Small businesses, although not illegal, were harassed and operated in a hostile environment. They were monitored by the secret police and often charged with fraud and impropriety. Over time, nearly all private restaurants in Budapest became people's cafeterias and state-owned proletarian pubs. By the 1950s, most people worked in state jobs, lived in state-owned properties, and sent their children to state schools. They depended on the state for health care, and they bought their food from state-owned shops. Communists also nationalized the remaining industries that were not dismantled and sent to the Soviet Union and began centralizing the economy around five-year plans similar to that of the Soviet Union. Production targets for everything from road construction to shoe manufacturing were set, but often these numbers or targets were not based on any real observations, but just numbers agreed on by government officials with no basis in reality. They also struggled to set prices for basic goods, especially as they had to combat the twin forces of inflation in the black market. Anyways, the growing economic integration of Western Europe compelled the Moscow to coordinate trade and economic policies throughout Eastern Europe and to promote its dependency on the Soviet Union. Over the long-term nationalization of the economies, prolonged shortages and distorted market prices. Economic planners struggled with fixing prices. Most nations, such as Poland, also saw the use of multiple currencies, such as the Reichsmark, Russian ruble, and Polish zloty. Yeast and alcohol also served as currencies in some places as well. Staple goods were rationed almost everywhere. Hyperinflation was also an issue as well in Hungary and East Germany, where prices changed by the hour and people struggled to buy food and basic goods. Because of this, and despite propaganda and secret police, the black market grew ever more complex, from primitive street hawkers to sophisticated smuggling operations. The Eastern European regimes also built new social institutions that would st structure the individual's lives from cradle to grave. 
They saw children as blank slates. No matter how criminal their bourgeois parents, they could be transformed into perfect socialist citizens. Schools took on new importance. Correct politics would be the center of the curriculum, from kindergarten to Ph.D. programs, with an emphasis on the history of the working class, the Russian Revolution, and the achievements of the Soviet Union. Teachers who deviated from these subjects risked losing their jobs. History books were rewritten, and for some time, Polish children used Soviet textbooks from 1950 to 1951. University faculty were also purged of non-communists. Most remaining humanities professors fled to the West, and communist authorities tried to retain scientists, mathematicians, physicians, and technicians as they could not be easily replaced, and their technical knowledge was deemed valuable in rebuilding the nation. Children's books and magazines focused on the greatness of Stalin and the glories of central planning and the evils of capitalism. One story of Mr. Twist is the story of a racist American capitalist who visits Leningrad and is angered to see a black man staying at this hotel. The children recruited to go to university were specifically recruited from, work, from the working class and the peasants to create a new socialist elite to manage the society. They also wanted an intelligentsia and bureaucracy loyal to the regime. This plan uh, faced problems, though. Nearly 20% uh, failed because they couldn't take notes during lectures and lacked a good primary education. However, eventually they did change the intelligentsia of Eastern Europe, and by the 1980s, most of the intelligentsia and bureaucracy did come from humble backgrounds. In much of Poland, children had been forbidden from attending school by the Nazis as they wanted to make the Poles into a slave race, and the literacy rate had fallen to some 80%. Moreover, between the Nazis and the Soviets, much of the Polish intelligentsia had been murdered during the war. A large prison complex system also was developed in Eastern Europe as a result of the communist coups and purges. In Hungary, between 1945 and 1949, some 40,000 people were arrested, and around Budapest alone, the new regime built 16 internment camps with a capacity of 23,000 prisoners. In Poland, by 1954, there were 84,000 political criminals, Czechoslovakia built 18 camps, and Bulgaria built several work camps that operated well after the Stalinist era into the 1970s. Many of these criminals were housed in camps that had originally been constructed by the Nazis. Conditions were often horrible as a result of overcrowding. Many cells had no toilets, and prisoners had to be taken to use the washroom twice a day. Those who became sick and had diarrhea often had to live in their own feces and barf. Many inmates, unfortunately, had been inmates in these same camps under the Nazis, only to find themselves back there three or four years later. The camps were often not hot in the, in the summer and cold in the winter, and the, the inmates were often full of lice. Internally as well, political enemies were often exiled to remote parts of the country, like in Poland and Romania, akin to the Soviet Union. Many holidays were also created by the communist governments to replace older religious and nationalist holidays and to create and to celebrate the achievements of communism. Most people under high Stalinism sought to rebuild their lives the best way they could in the system. They were neither dissidents nor were the majority uh, fanatic supporters of the regime. Stalin and the Soviets tried to push the influence beyond their traditional borders in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Like we spoke about in episode 10, Stalin tried to intimidate Turkey into giving the Soviet Union control of the Turkish Straits, driving them into the arms of the Americans. The Soviets for a while occupied northern Iran, which I will cover in our coming episode about the Cold War in the Middle East. 
In the Far East, Stalin moved to reestablish Russian influence in Manchuria, which had been lost after the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. To achieve this, Stalin offered to be an intermediary between Mao and the Kuomintang. The Kuomintang agreed to an alliance against the Japanese, fearing that the Soviets might just hand the area over to Mao. Moreover, with the Soviet Union's entry into the war in the Pacific, Stalin felt that, that like Germany, he would be able to participate in the occupation of Japan after the war. However, the American use of the atomic bomb dashed Stalin's chances of participating in the occupation. Like Germany, Stalin viewed Japan, despite its defeat, as a long-term threat to its vast, sparsely populated empire in Asia. In the end, however, with the breakdown of U.S.-Soviet relations and U.S. pressure on the Kuomintang not to negotiate with the Soviet Union uh, uh, over Manchuria, the Soviets ceded the territory to the Chinese Communist Party once they withdrew. When the Chinese Communist Party triumphed over the Kuomintang and established the People's Republic of China, it drastically changed the nature of the Cold War, making it far more global in scope, making the point, marking the point rather, when most of the world's population lived under some sort of Marxist government. These events would lead to Stalin's endorsing Kim Il-sung's invasion of South Korea, but that's a topic for a future episode. Stalin, the growing Cold War, gave him the ability to reign in the Soviet elites, and it also gave him the ability to maintain social cohesion within the Soviet Empire. Many Soviet elites and ordinary Soviet citizens saw the United States as a hostile power the so and the Soviet Union needed to stand up to. In the end, Stalin's imperial project absorbed many of the forces that otherwise might have worked against the Soviet Empire. Stalin's empire, though, was held together through the projection of naked military power, playing of regions and ethnicities off against each other, bribes, and a secular religion, Stalinism, which he was in which he was elevated as a semi-divine force within society. Nevertheless, his rule was, mi was a mixed one. Uh, on the one hand, he had achieved his goal of securing the Soviet Union's borders with a buffer zone of friendly Eastern European states. And in the Pacific, he had by accident and luck achieved a similar security blanket with the Soviet territory in the Far East through the creation of the PRC and the DPRK. But on the other hand, the Soviet Union now faced its worst nightmare, an alliance of capitalist states led by the United States in, intent on its isolation and containment. In the end, though, Stalin's successors would face the growing challenge of keeping this empire together. Once Stalin died, they faced the issue of his succession and how to move at the society forward. As the Soviet republics and Eastern Europe recovered as well, and the horrors of the Second World War passed into memory, the Soviet Union would struggle to hold together the disparate peoples of their empire. Moreover, the United States, having economically rebuilt Europe and Japan with free market economies and mass consumption, would present a fundamental ideological challenge to the Soviet system's way of life by the 1960s. The struggle Stalin launched against the West with the Berlin blockade that his successors chose to continue left no clear path to victory. The Soviet Union was caught in a slow, grinding war of ideological struggle as they had no recourse to armed struggle given their weakened state after the war and the advent of nuclear weapons. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 33, The Soviet Empire. Join us next episode on September the 15th as we examine the Soviet Gulag system. If you like this episode or any episode in particular, feel free to share it on Facebook or Twitter and tell your friends about us. If you don't have a lot of friends into history, help us out by giving us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. 
If you want to help support us, please donate through Patreon on the website at www.historyofthecoldwar.com. One word. Any contribution is appreciated. Well, there, don't forget to check out our pictures for this episode. Shoot us an email if you have questions or comments. And if you have a moment, please fill out our survey there so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.